All right, welcome to another episode of Epic Phelan. We have back with us today Todd Schmeichel from Edward Jones. He's going to talk to us a little bit about investing again and what the market's been doing with this whole corona and COVID thing that's going on. Hello, Todd. How are you? Great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. No problem. I can't remember. We were playing Jenga last time. We were. <laughs> Who won? <laughs> yeah, we had quite a good game. We got it, it right. It was now. yeah, it was tall. Like it was like yeah, I remember like there was like there's barely any pieces left. It was it was, it was pretty fun. So um the markets. What's what's been going on lately? Well, obviously during March there was a, a major, major correction. You know, the market was down uh, depending on what index you're using, but as much as thirty four percent, thirty five percent. What we often see is these L recoveries where the recovery takes a long time, but this was a V recovery. So it went down and went right back up. Now, not everything has returned, but banking has returned, and, but tech is just booming right now and has gone right back up. And tech is booming so much right now that Apple on the, sometime, I think on Friday, Apple is splitting its stock four or five for one. And the market's done pretty well despite the fact COVID, uh, sometimes I don't know if the market even understands that COVID's happening. So, you know what? I'm going to backtrack a little bit here because I know I have a, a wide array of listeners and I could always use the more knowledge. Knowledge is power, my friend. <laughs> knowledge is power. So, when you say Apple is splitting its stocks, what do you mean by that? Okay, so let's say you have one share or one stock. Yep. It's worth $100. So the value of that share is $100. So what companies will do sometimes is they'll say, our share is quite expensive, so they'll split it. So Apple, let's say, splits four for one. That means you still have your same $100, but you now have four shares instead of one. The value of your investment hasn't changed. Now there's some discussion about whether when a stock splits, whether that invites more people or makes it easier for people to enter into that price target or not. But the reality is, is that share splits don't change the value of anything. They just change the number of the shares. Oh, okay. No, that's cool. I guess that some shares could conceivably consider just uncost, like the cost is so bad that or so high, they would just be considered unreachable for many people. Amazon, which is over three thousand dollars, not everybody has four or five thousand dollars to throw into a stock, right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes the barrier of entry, I guess, better or easier. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to say it. That barrier, that entry point is more doable for more people. And people tend not to want to just buy one share, right? Yeah. They want to, they want to buy a number of shares. Somewhere like, you know, in that 50 to 100 range is what I find most people are looking to buy. I think we talked about this last time a little bit too. And when you're getting into doing some investing, the easy route to do is like like bundling all your investments right like doing like a mutual fund or it's like different stocks or shares or it depends on what kind of money you have to invest and i don't mean not to sort of say that you have to have a bunch of money any money is the best time to invest is when you have any amount of money it's just what options are available to you and what some of the guiding principles are investing in asset allocation and that means we have some money in cash we have some money in equities or stock we have some money in fixed income which are things like bonds and mutual or pardon me bonds or savings accounts or gic's 
And if we have a large amount of money, we can buy those instruments individually. But when we don't have a large amount of money, we can still get into the market. We can just buy those instruments in a different way. And that's why mutual funds tend to exist. They sometimes get a bad reputation for their, their costs, and their costs are higher. There's no question. But it's because you're buying with a group of people and there's a manager involved. But as people's wealth grows, they tend to move from mutual funds, at least in my experience and the people I work with we tend to move out of mutual funds and into the actual stock or the actual uh, individual instruments. And there are some cases where mutual funds just work fine for some people and some people like them. You know, it's just, it depends on that individual. You're right. A mutual fund is essentially a bundle. Okay. So yeah, a lot of your clients will, will kind of move into doing individual stocks, but if someone wanted to jump into that, kind of right away what's the barrier of entry because not everybody has like a big savings or you know investment portfolio if say you're a young kid or you're just doing this for the first time and you're like okay let's let's you know have some fun with it what would your advice be yeah if you're just going to jump in and you've uh, obviously uh, commissions become a barrier you know, and before I was a full-time financial advisor, I was a day trader, and I also had, was a long-term uh, stock buyer myself. And you can obviously do this on your own. You can open up a discount brokerage account. You know, I know that lots of financial advisors are pretty anti-discount brokerage, but I think they serve a purpose for the right person, right? You know, and there's lots of good discount brokerage accounts out there, lots of good providers. I think where things are problematic for people is the research, the time, the inclination, the follow-up, that sort of thing. But if you just want to play around and speculate a little bit, that's by far the cheapest way to do it. And I, I think that when you're starting to just build a long-term portfolio and a long-term plan, that's not as effective. And we know that people who do it on their own tend to not do very well. But it's a great way to learn and it's a great way to get entry initially into the stock market. For $9.99 or $5.99, whatever they're charging now, you can buy more stocks, right? You can put $500 in. I don't usually put people's money into the market unless they have between two dollars and $4,000 for a single stock if I'm working on a commission-based model. I'm not a real big fan of the commission-based model. I prefer models that are fee-for-service, but that fee-for-service model allows people to trade in and out of whatever securities they want as much as they want with one monthly fee. The problem with that is that you need about twenty-five to $50,000 to start there. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, just buy a single stock with a full-service broker. Unless you've got a big account and you think that, I'm just going to buy this one stock because it's interesting. You can do it that way, but I'm not in the business of sort of, of hijacking people and stealing from them. I'm going to get beat up by other financial advisors. <laughs> That's not fair to people, right? So, like when someone says, I want to buy... Uh, like when marijuana stocks got really popular, a guy phoned me up and he said, I want to buy about $500 worth of canopy. And I was like, okay. And he was like, well, how much is it going to cost me? I said, well, you can do it. And he was like, you should do it. But you shouldn't do it here. It's just too expensive. Oh, okay. So if you're going to build a plan and build a diversified portfolio, that's where people like me are involved. But if you just want to sort of meddle around and just try a few things, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that's super, super honest of you. I mean, you could certainly be taking fees off people and doing it that way. Yeah, you got to sleep and yeah. like you're doing something 
worthwhile and not to, it's like that old mechanic story right i don't want to go there and, and be told a bunch of stuff is wrong with my car that's not really wrong fix my car so i can drive it but don't lie to me i'm not interested in pulling people legs and i don't i don't need their extra five dollars that way sort of thing i want clients that i'm going to work with for a long time okay so say a client comes to you and they say okay we don't really have a whole lot of savings we don't really have a lot but we want to start putting money towards our future you're the guy to, to come and talk to. Yeah, and so then we sit down, we start everything with just conversation. Where do you want to get to? That's the main thing. What's your goal? We start with that conversation. It doesn't cost anything for that conversation because I have to determine in that conversation whether they're actually people I can help and whether I'm a good fit for them. They need to determine that. And I think if they pay for a fee to be con- for consultation, they feel like they have to do business with you and you might not be a good fit for them and that's not fair to them. But on my side of the equation is they might not be a good fit for me if you're taking someone's money. You're now taking them on as a client. Yeah. So I think for me, I just start with that conversation. We work towards the goals. Where are they today? Where do they want to get? What things are they currently doing if they're doing anything? What things could we do? How could those investments change over time? How can that plan change over time? And how are we going to work together for the life of your investment life and until we reach your goals? Every time I come back to that same model. So if I'm working with somebody and it's the first time, you look at their goals. If it's the tenth time, you look at their goals. You look at how things are doing. People's lives change, right? Stuff changes in people's lives. So we're constantly reviewing. And I think that review gives them a great foundation to know where we're starting from, where we're getting to, and where we're going to. Mm-hmm. So a large part of like the home buying process is using an RSP to purchase a home. Maybe we'll first start talking about that process a little bit and because you're probably familiar with that, doing a RSP loan. What I've heard people doing in the past is taking out a loan when it comes to tax time to max out their RSPs, right? And then they put that into an RSP that they can then take the loan out on. Right. How do you suggest that, that process? So with the home buyer plan, what a lot of people do is they the money has to be in there for 90 days. And I like anybody who's a first-time buyer, even if they've got the money, to use the home buyer plan. And the reason why I like it is it does a couple of things. One, it gives them some extra money towards buying a house. And we all know that things are going to be there that we don't expect. Legal fees, the washer might need to be replaced or whatever the heck. And so if they take their money and they put up to $35,000 into their RSP, they're immediately getting a tax refund almost for sure. And when they get that tax refund, that extra money can be used for those extra things. Additionally, the next thing the home buyer's plan does then for them is it creates a long-term savings plan. You have to save that, pay that money back over 15 years, right? So when anyone's going to buy a house, if you haven't bought a house before and have an RSP, you should max it out to at least 35000 And then take that money out and use it to buy your first house. The money has to be there for 90 days, but it's a great way to do it. I talk to everybody. So what happens to me often is I I have clients that are older. They send their kids to me. Their kids want to buy a house. We started an RSP, and that part is is part of the plan, right? So we say, where do you want to go? Well, I want to buy a house. And I say, well, here are some options of ways to buy a house. How much money do you want to spend? I actually spend a fair amount of time on MLS. I was on MLS the other day. My wife said, are you planning on moving out? at these condos well they weren't for me they were for a client and we were trying to figure out her net worth and she's like well i don't know what my condo is worth so i looked in her building and there were four for sale there because she wants to sell her condo to her daughter 
And she's like, I want to be fair, but I want to sort of know. And her daughter's going to use her RFP. Okay, yeah, and that totally makes sense. With that, and correct me if I'm wrong, so the nice thing about doing that and, and taking out your RSPs, are your RSPs technically still in there and collecting money? Is it like a loan against your RSPs? Oh, they're actually out. They're actually they're actually out, so then you have to pay them, put them back in. Yes, you have to pay them back over a 15-year period. And so $35,000 by 15, you ought to pay that monthly, yearly, whatever. Now, the other advantage sometimes is that uh, I find uh, that people buy their home after they get married, right? Yeah. And then some people will say, uh, well, my wife has been working. I find that particularly with older couples. They've never owned their own home. They've been renters. They get together. They get married. And then uh, they decide to have some kids. So, you know, people used to get married in early 20s. Now they're getting into their 30s and stuff before they get married. So they could have a sizable RSP. And when we plan, we say, oh, you're going to have too much RSP down the road. So let's take $35,000 out. And then I tell, and the mom decides, or the dad, whoever's going to stay home with the, with the child for six years, I say, don't pay the money back for those six years. Because it just goes on your taxes, and oh, you got to tax free now because you're not paying any taxes. No, it just affects your income. Now it's different if you're making fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. That's getting added. It might bump you up into a tax bracket. So then you want to be careful. But I help people understand all of those things, and I help people understand whether they should pay back and if they should pay back and when they should pay back. So it's not just so much like um, investing is a, a set it and forget it. No kind of thing. It's a living thing, and you need to have somebody like yourself. That's a great way to say it. No one's ever said that. It's a oh, yeah. <laughs> the investment world's full of this buy and hold mentality, and I think that's uh, wrong. I think it's buy and do your daily homework mentality, not just buy it and forget about it. Now there are some things you're going to buy, and you're going to own them when you're 75 years old still. But for the most part, you have to be doing your homework to make sure they're still a fit for you. You know, uh, it's a little bit like. Uh, we could buy a car, never change the oil, never put gas in it, hope it's going to work forever. I think they need some maintenance. Your investment needs some maintenance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, and there's all sorts of changes in what the economies are doing. And yeah. speaking of which, oil and gas. I mean, we have two things happened back in, what was it, late February, early March. Oil took like a, a massive beating. <laughs> and Corona and our COVID happen at the same time. And that kind of overshadowed what was happening in that oil market for, you know, the newspaper headlines and, and whatnot. So where are we at with that? So in March, we had negative futures in oil. And I'll try to explain it simply. People buy a contract and they say, okay, I'm willing to spend $10 on a barrel of oil in 15 months. And uh, then the oil company has to deliver that barrel in 15 months at that $10. But what happened in March was that, uh, so most of these futures are never paid for or they're never delivered upon. The oil is never delivered. So if I buy a thousand barrels of oil, well, where would I put them in my backyard? Yeah. So the idea there is that hopefully I buy my contract for $10 a barrel, but the it goes to $12. So I sell my contract to $12 to somebody else who actually wants the oil. That's how people make money on futures in a roundabout way. What happened in March was that the future went down so badly, it went negative, that the oil companies did not have to deliver the oil because people didn't want it, and people were paying them to take back their contracts. 
So it was a great day to be an oil company. Even though the price of oil went terrible, what happened is they got to drill the oil, barrel the oil, and people were asking them to, they would say, hey, I'll give you $2 if you take back my contract. Oh, okay. So it sounded worse than it was. It was bad for investors in futures of oil. You know, I guess in the long run, it was a bad day for oil companies too because the price was so low. Now the price has rebounded somewhat, and I think we're back to, uh, and obviously the oil people can argue with me as much as they want because I'm not in the oil industry, but I think we're back to where most major players are can make some money. Well, of course, the differential between Canadian and U.S. crude is a big problem for Alberta. And I continue to see people in the oil industry being laid off. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I don't think we're ever seeing a $100 barrel of oil with the same profit margins that we saw before. No, it's hard to imagine that. But, hey, stranger things have happened. But, uh, you know, murder hornets and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 global viruses and you know you know you just never know these days so taking that into consideration that that's a whole other thing probably speaks to diversification sure and being diversified with your with your investments because you know all these different things can happen like if you can imagine it probably it can it'll it'll happen well if you take the alberta economy context and make an analogy to investing Alberta's suffering right now because we're we have so much riding on gas and oil, right? Like, yeah. I, I think I don't think it's much of a headline to say that Albertans are struggling or Alberta is a problem to struggling because the gas and oil is struggling. I think we all recognize. Yeah. Well, think about your portfolio in, in investing. If you only have one type of company and it's gas and oil, and that struggles, your portfolio is going to struggle. Would Alberta's economy be better off if it had a really good banking, a really good tech industry, a really good consumer discretionary industry? Yeah, it would probably be better off. And I think there would be less job loss, and that's how a portfolio should look as well. But the other thing is, is that we tend to invest in what we know. So in Alberta, because we all knew oil and gas, when I was taking people's portfolios on when they were in trouble, they were all full of oil and gas. And that means you're going to lose a lot of money. Your job is oil and gas. Your stock is oil and gas. Your retirement plan is oil and gas. That's a problem. You know, it's like eating the same thing day after day after day. It's just dangerous, right? It doesn't work well. Mm-hmm. So, because you're 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 knowledgeable in investments and you have a varied background, if we go back to our first Jenga game and interview, we were talking much about um, your background is a. Uh, teacher and a principal and a superintendent yes so saying all that and with, with your background and with what you know in investments calgary has to like we were just talking about diversify what do you think that we should get into i have a few thoughts myself but i'm i'm just i'm i'm a realtor right so i i have not a whole lot of background on the investing side so i certainly see trends out there but um, what are your thoughts to what Calgary should really be searching out? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. I think that I do see sort of a burgeoning or developing tech sector in Calgary. Like I think the Alberta are hard workers, and it's generally a pretty educated population, and it's also a population that's really entrepreneurial. And I think that really lends itself to that sort of Silicon Valley, California, entrepreneurial startup kind of thing in tech. So I think tech is a great place for us. I think there could be some uh, medical companies here too, like 
you know, there's just lots of possibilities. Good population base, diverse population base, educated, other resources. So I don't see why those things aren't more lured here or more coming. I also think the entertainment industry, like before we used to give great credits for movies and stuff like that. And there was some development of film in the Calgary area. And I know in uh, that, I think it's called Port McLeod near Lethbridge, they were shooting some movies. And I have a client in that industry. And then the government started cutting all the subsidies. So they all went to BC. Well, that, what's wrong with that industry? I think that's a great industry for us. Oh, absolutely. We absolutely have to have subsidies out there for different businesses, whether it's tech, whether it's you know entertainment. Medical, I think, is huge. With an aging population, I get why we would probably make manufacture a lot of our medication overseas. But if we could figure out a way to do it here, I think we would be that much better off. Well, I think that you've got a skilled labor force already, right? Like the number of engineers in Calgary is crazy. Just every second person I meet is an engineer of some type. It's all yeah. very skilled population base. With a little bit of a mind shift, we could we could really be a booming economy again. Just need to kind of get around the oil and gas hurdle. I'm not saying that oil and gas should be done away with or anything. I don't think that at all. I think it's always going to be a staple of this economy. And that's a very important part of Alberta and our heritage. But I just think there's other things we can add to support oil and gas. Oil and gas has done the heavy lifting for 25, 30 years now. It's time to help that out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. And by diversifying, like you said, like a rising tide floats all boats. If you have one economy that's doing well, it's going to help everybody else. Yeah, and that's what oil and gas has done for Alberta. Like, no. just like my industry wouldn't be here without oil and gas. They wouldn't be building houses, and you wouldn't be selling houses without. Yeah, that's yeah. Like those people, like oil and gas, has done amazing things for Alberta. Oh, absolutely! You got the boom in the early two thousands, and yeah. I think that was also playing a bit of catch up with with the rest of Canada as well, population wise, kind of coming into our own as a major city. As well as, well as Edmonton, yeah, you, know, you give give those guys some credit, I guess. <laughs> but um, but yeah, really, you know, with a city over a million people, like, yeah, the prices did have to to jump as much as they did. Yeah, in housing, we're known sort of thing for the Rockies, and people want to go to Banff and Jasper, but there's a lot of other things to see and do here, and that kind of tourism doesn't get exploited like the same way. It really doesn't get the marketing behind it. And that's, and that's one of the reasons why I have the podcast is to kind of promote some of these other things that are around. And there's a great um, guest ranch just east of Calgary that's really cool. Teaches you fly fishing and, and horseback riding. And they're really awesome as well. But yeah, there's all sorts of different um, things to get into. you sure you're not by a, a major body of water like the ocean or anything, but you have... You have little lakes and whatnot in, in around here that you can do paddle boarding and, and all sorts of different things, kayaking and whatnot. And I don't think Calgary and, and Edmonton as well, I'm guessing. I, don't, I haven't spent a lot of time in the last four years in Edmonton. But Calgary has a great sort of uh, dining scene too, right? Like there are so many good restaurants in Calgary. Well, obviously during COVID, we haven't been able to experience them. But there are tons of good restaurants in Calgary. And, you know, I think there's been winners of uh, the Master Chef and stuff out of Calgary. And there's even a place in Longview, just a little town. So 
south of Calgary with the Longview Steakhouses, and it's incredible the food there. There's a whole bunch of great little things, and as things are kind of starting to open up, there's one or two places that I'm I'm very tempted to to check out. Little hole in the walls, and there's a there's one little pub here that's a or bar cocktail bar. They give you a secret code. You have to make a, a reservation. They give you a secret code to get in. Oh, Betty Lou's Library. Betty Lou's Library. That's the one. I love that place. Have you been there? I've been there three or four times. You go down oh. the stairs, and there's just a little vestibule and a phone on a table, and that's it. And you pick up the phone, and you say, hey, it's Todd Schmeichel, and my code is. And then the wall moves, and they let you in. And it's like right out of the speakeasy out of the 1920s. It's, I really enjoy it. That's super cool. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this place, and I'm like, this is next on my list. Another one I just checked out was a Carnival Cafe. It's over in the, the southeast, and they, they do all, like, carny food. I've been really good. I've been on I've been on a bit of a diet, and I've been getting in my 10,000 steps every morning here. But I said I'm going to have a cheat day, and I'm going to go check out this uh, Carnival Cafe. I mean, I just had a burger, so I couldn't speak to, like, all their other junk food that they had. They have, like, candy apples, and they say gourmet candy floss. I'm like, I'm not sure what that is. But, yeah, it's it was a, it was a cool little place, just a little hole in the wall. But I, I love places like that. Me too. Yeah, I, I like that kind of thing too. Well, even like I went uh, just before COVID, about three nights before where it really came up, I went axe throwing with a few buddies. Oh, pretty, nice. That was fun. Yeah, axe throwing is great. Um, yeah, and there's all sorts of sorts of like little things that have gained steam and popularity, like locked rooms. There's a million of them here. <laughs> speeders. My daughter wanted to go to speeders for her birthday. Oh, yeah. So we went to Speeders, and there must have been 60 people there, all adults, all uh, out uh, drive, uh, you know, go for a couple of laps around the speedway in these go-karts and then go out and have a meal. During the COVID? Oh, that was quite a bit before COVID. Oh, okay. But, yeah, there are lots of those things. And, and that uh, fly, like, I haven't tried it. I actually got a, a gift certificate for it where you actually learn to sort of parachute indoors. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, that seems awesome. Yeah, I don't know if there's like any restrictions on that, like weight, weight restrictions or anything. Well, if there is, I won't be going. <laughs> yeah, neither, neither will I. Neither will I for a bit. <laughs> it's impressive that you got in your ten thousand steps. I wouldn't get in ten thousand steps in a week most weeks. Do you want know it's it's crazy? I went. Uh, I mean, I know this is like a little bit off topic from your, <laughs> from our investing, but this is investing in yourself and investing in your health. <laughs> so I went to the doctor and he was like, he's like, okay, your blood pressure is like pretty high, dude. And um, I'm paraphrasing, of course. <laughs> and yeah, I said, you know, look, I'm looking at doing my 10,000 steps a day. Let's not talk medication yet. And within two weeks, I dropped about 15 pounds. Holy yeah, and I was just doing 10,000 steps first thing before I can do anything else in the day. That's my, it's my non-negotiable. Obviously, that's a dumb question. How far is it? 10,000 steps. But where are you, uh, like, you get up in the morning, you, you go outside and do this? Yeah, I just, I, I get up. I'm like, I didn't want any excuses to be like, well, I have to drive over to the, you know, bike path or do this. Or I'm just like, yeah, I'm just getting up, walking outside my front door. There's like a lot of nice streets. You can just like walk up and down and in Mayland Heights here. And it's about an hour and a half. I think it's about 8K. 
And I just, I try to pick as many hilly areas as I can find. And then, you know, that way I'm, you know, it's not just a, a downhill or an easy little walk, but a brisk walk, nothing. I'm not like doing the speed walking, like (laughs) weird little, weird little steps or anything, but I'm having a blast doing it. I'm listening to a ton of podcasts and just a great way to start. It's a great way to start your day. And I mean, the first week I was tired. I was like, Oh God, this is brutal. But yeah, once you get into it, it's like, this is awesome. It's going to happen when the snow comes. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> I'm like, what am I going to do? I, got, I think I'm going to have to end up going to a gym and using an elliptical or a, a treadmill. Find an, uh, like, uh, find an arena with uh, the upper floor. Like in Okotoks here, there's the arena. Oh, yeah. And also the uh, field house, and they have a walking track around it. And so when my daughters play volleyball, I eat chips and drink pop and everybody else walks. Yeah. <laughs> I should yeah. probably join them in the walk. <laughs> yeah. It's great. You don't think, because it's not like a high intensity workout. I have a buddy that has a really great gym, one for all fitness. And he was the world's fastest cow or he would race people at the Stampeders games. He's actually he's on my podcast too. <laughs> but he says some pretty intense workouts. But this is just walking. Hour and a half, that's a lot of time. I get stressed about time. Are you stressed about that much time? I, I look at it as you're investing in the most important thing, right? Which is you, right? So that, that extra that extra hour and a half, you know, maybe buying you years, right? So I said, you know what? It's look after it now, right? Before it becomes an issue. That there was just a quiz, I think it was on LinkedIn or Facebook, and it was a poll, I guess. And it was here are five things. If you could choose any of them, which would you choose? One was unlimited tacos, which was a joke. <laughs> Good health for the rest of your life, so much money, and I forget what the other two were. And I chose good health because all the other ones you could choose to do in some way. You know, I don't have to have unlimited money kind of thing to live a good life, but doesn't matter if you have all those other things. If you don't feel good, you don't want, you don't do anything. Yeah. You know, you have all the money in the world and what's, what's it worth at the end? If you know, you have a family member or a loved one that says, Hey, you know, let's go for a hike and you can't enjoy yourself. Right. Or, you know, or kids or whatever, or you look at yourself in the mirror and you're just like, I'm not happy with myself. It's funny to say that I have a friend I grew up with. He's my oldest friend. We were grade one right till now. We've been friends our entire lives. And, we started this thing when we were, I think we were 35 or 40, and every five years we would go on a big trip. And so we did a bunch of stuff. One year we went to Egypt, another year we went to Italy, this sort of thing. For the past couple of years, we haven't, maybe the past six years, seven years, we haven't been doing that so much. He's a professor in Toronto, so it's been a little harder. So what we have been doing is getting together in the first week of January every year in skiing. So last year was our sixth year. and. I put on so much weight that I could, my feet hurt constantly, I could, and it ruined my skiing time. And so we're going this January again, and I have got, I can't let that happen again. My own darn fault. Yeah, it's you know what, and what I had to do, because I've been telling myself that I was going to do this for a long time. I mean, I was like really into fitness about 10 years ago, <laughs> I think. Maybe it was, it's not, 
tough to say that, you know, it seems like it's like makes me feel old. <laughs> um, <laughs> my brother would be like, you are old. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, until the doctor kind of gave me a, a bit of a finger wag, I said, you know, like, yeah, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. Right. And it's, and then I just, I, I got home. I, I just took my track pants and threw them at my front door. And I'm like, that's it. Like it's, it's happening tomorrow morning. And yeah, you know, doing hills, especially, you know, it was like their, their first couple of times, there was some rough and really heavy breathing. I'm really enjoying it. It's great. Like I say, you listen to some good podcasts or, or even just, even if you just don't have anything to listen to and you can just get some good thinking done. I think that's missing from our lives, the whole sort of discipline thing, right? It's hard to be disciplined about stuff. It's very hard. And especially in this instant gratification culture that we have we talk about tech right and we're just inundated we want something and it's like whether it's skip the dishes we have our food just instantly to us we have we don't have to to work for anything now going from like where i worked before with some family before i was a realtor 13 14 years ago i was on my feet all day and i was i was running around and and uh, just constantly active but now you're at a desk all day or driving from one appointment to the other. And it's a very sedentary kind of life. Very easy, poorly kind of life, right? You know, yeah. hard to get your food organized in the morning. So the next thing you know, you're like, oh, I got to run for this appointment. Oh, I'll just stop here at McDonald's. And that's exactly what I was doing. And I didn't even realize I was doing that. I'm like, oh, I eat pretty good. I'm like, and then I look in the back seat because... Yeah, my car was a little messy. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my good god!" And there's, yeah, that's a lot of McDonald's bags. My garbage collection. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think yeah, I think that's you know talking about investing. I think yeah, investing in in one's health is critical. And you mentioned where you find the time. I've even been thinking about doing, you know, my own little like advertising, throwing you know maybe a shirt on that has my you know, website on it, or even having door hangers and doing an hour and a half walk with, you know, hey, you want to buy a house? That's a great idea. Yeah, so now you're getting the exercise in, but you're also, you're doing something for your business as well. Maybe nothing comes out of doing that business side of whatever you're doing, but who knows? Yeah, but even if one thing comes out of it, you still need the exercise. So like you said, if nothing comes out, you still got the exercise. If one thing comes out of it, it's something that you didn't have. Yeah. yeah that's a good investment. People often ask me about uh, what's bad and good debt. Well, good debt is anything that builds you. And uh, bad debts is anything that attracts from you, right? And so like when people want to spend money to get a degree, that's good debt. You know, it makes them more employable. It makes them probably make more money. Bad debt is like when you take your your credit card and you book a trip to Italy there and it takes you 10 years to pay it off. That's bad debt. <laughs> Sounds bad debt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what would you recommend people start looking at perhaps to, um, to invest in? What are some good investments? Do you think? I don't think there's any specific area that's uh, good or bad. What people should really look at is first maximizing what's in their pocket in terms of tax. So, People who make under $40,000 a year, now this isn't a hard and fast rule, but a, sort of a, a working rule. If you make under $40,000 a year, you should put your money in a TFSA. 
The second thing is if you make over $40,000 a year, you're likely paying some tax, and we should take that tax and eliminate it and put it into an RSP. And don't spend your RSP return, your tax return. You know, if you save your RSP tax return every year, it's amazing how much faster you get to the goal that you're trying to get to. I think other things that people need to think about in terms of investment, their time horizon, just how long do they want to keep investing or how long until they want to reach their goal. Like we spend a lot of time talking about people's risk and how do you feel about this, how do you feel about that. The thing we never ask people is, how do you feel about never reaching your goal? Yeah. We never ask people that. And so a lot of people are like really negative and afraid of risk. But as soon as you say to them, okay, well, we can do this and you're not going to have hardly any risk. But how do you feel about never retiring? Wait a second, what? Yeah. I can never, never retire. Well, then this risk doesn't work for me. Or even just setting their goal. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's like, the top. That's really tough too. Just to take a look and be like, okay, what's what is my goal? What do I want? Right? And and realistically, you know, somewhat. But I think you made a good point here earlier. You know, you threw your track pants at the door, and you're that's it, I'm gonna go. Yeah. Investing is like that too. If you wait till you're sixty to throw your track pants at the door, you might as well just go and find a chair. But if you throw your track pants at the door and get started early enough. It's not so much what you're invested in, it's that you're invested. And especially if you have somebody like you that's watching watching my back. And that's the difference between doing it yourself and using an advisor is that you don't need to do all that work. That work just takes time from you to do the things you want to do. And so that's actually a lot of my clients. That's how they came, became clients is that uh, they wanted um, more free time. And they might have been managing their own investments and they may have even been doing a good job but the amount of time it was taking up. And we know that people spend less time planning their retirement in a year than they do planning their Easter vacation. Well, it's not enough time. Yeah. I don't plan holidays anymore. About four years ago, I decided that I had enough of Expedia.com and searching websites. Now I just use this lady who's a travel agent. I can't get any better deal than her because I, I one year we had a challenge, her and I, and I could not find a better deal. <laughs> The only way I can find a better deal is by, like, when we pick a hotel, I can't get a better price on it. She gets a better price all the time. And so why would I make all these phone calls? But she can just phone me, and just before I go, everything comes in the mail. That's perfect. Like, no stress. You know what? This, this interview, it's, it's, it's really cool because I didn't know where we were going to go with this. Yeah. I was like, okay, so we've talked about investments before, but I really like how we, we moved into talking about investing in your health. The other thing I was thinking too is this whole corona thing, and I think it's I think it's still true now, even though we're we're past the stage of being locked down and no one's doing anything. But I still think there's opportunity now for people to invest in themselves. Oh for sure there is. Yeah, for sure there is. There's tons of places. How many times have you uh, thought, oh, I'd be interested in knowing about that, or I'd be interested in learning about that? Like, have you ever looked at that Udemy website? Oh, yeah. Like, I was really interested in a couple of things. And so, I did, like, for $14.99, I took the course. Oh, cool. I didn't finish all the courses because partly through, I was like, oh, I, I got what I wanted out of this. I got enough out of this. So, I think, or I, you know, 
one of the things I wanted to know was about how to fix small engines because I got this snowblower, I've had it forever and it never works. And I just wanted it to work. So I took this course on there and halfway through I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be able, I'm not buying all these tools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Idea how it works now, but it was still interesting. Maybe that's something that somebody could offer one day too, is a, a course in investing. Yeah, I do a lot of webinars with people. Okay. Before COVID, I did a lot of face-to-face, and uh, that's a throwback to my teacher background, and I quite enjoy doing that. I think people are so, they get so much of this stuff, it's how do they determine what's of value to them sort of thing. Yeah, how do I even know where to start? Or, you know, like you're saying, like if somebody wants to start playing around in the market, sure, they, they can do that, but where would they even start, right? The other thing is I find so many of these webinars, face-to-face things and that sort of thing are really sales pitches. So before I did this, I was a real estate investor. I had bought a few properties and was doing that. But the very first thing I went to about real estate investing, all it was was a pitch from this guy to buy his $399 program on how to get rich in real estate. Well, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to buy a couple of condos and rent them to kids going to university. Yeah. Become a real estate mogul in Arizona. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's funny and it's like you can kind of see them come along if you if you've done a few of them and it's like okay you get there and it's like okay this is going to turn into an hour-long sales pitch yeah. it's it's like they start to give you a little bit of information it seems like it's like oh in the next 10 minutes i'm going to hear something really good or really juicy and it's like nope and, and you leave it feeling like totally yeah totally empty so yeah if if you're if you're putting out webinars that are for people where they can actually learn a thing or two that's awesome. I do one that's the nuts and bolts of investing. Here's 10 things to consider. I do one for ladies where it's like, here are things to consider that are different for you than tend to be for men, that sort of thing. I used to do one when, when bonds and GICs returned any interest. I used to do <laughs> how, which worked better in your portfolio. The biggest one I do the most of now is estate. And I do it often with a lawyer and stuff because people can't get access to a lawyer. So I'll bring clients to to an estate program, and it's good because they bring their kids. And the worst thing that can happen in my industry is when someone passes away, we don't know who the money goes to. If someone needs the money, and also puts me in a difficult position is I'm holding somebody's money, and I don't know who they are now. So I like to do a lot of estate ones, and then they bring their executors and that sort of thing. And I get a lawyer to come, and a lawyer answers their questions. And we've all got questions, right, you know, about things. Where do you get your answer from? And I don't want to phone a lawyer and get a $1,500 bill for a five-minute consultation. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the same thing when I was looking to buy my first rental property. When I did that thing, I was like, okay, that's a waste of time. And then a friend said, well, why don't you just talk to a realtor? Because I'm not selling anything. It's like they know the other side, too. You <laughs> They're great on the buying side as well. You know, a good one will have your back for sure. I never bought a house like that before. What I had constantly done was drive around in the neighborhood. I wanted to look and find a couple of places, you know, look in the paper, and then phone a realtor and say, I want to look at those two houses. So the house I'm living in now, I totally did it another way. This is about before we knew each other, uh, but a guy in your in your area, Graham, Terry Berry. Oh, yeah. So I knew Graham, so I phoned Graham and said, I want to buy a house. Here's how much money I want to spend. When can you pick me up? <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't quite that easy. Yeah. I didn't do any of the legwork and I got way, like way better sort of understanding of what I was doing because the realtor was skilled and I wasn't relying on just 
obviously you do that for a living you got to have a pretty good skill set oh yeah absolutely i mean like anything else i think there's a big curve between those that have a system in place to help their clients and help their clients move throughout the process whether it be investing or whether it be buying a home or going to the gym or whatever it may be if you have a system where the client or customer can learn i think that's super important yeah i decided about four years ago that i was not going to do things that took a lot of time that someone else was obviously the expert in so since i started this job they put it all on but i lost about 40 pounds about well i guess that was six years ago inside of that because i lost about 40 pounds you know i read the books and blah 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 tried keto tried this one i'm sure they all work if you know what you're doing Finally, I just went to a nutritionist and I said, I want to lose weight. What do I need to do? And she drew up a plan, went back to see her. She said, here's what you're going to do. I said, I don't like that kind of food. She said, let's substitute this. Here's what you're going to do for exercise. Here's a trainer you need to go and see. I was 42 pounds that way. And then I stopped going and put it all back on. Consistency. Consistency is the big thing. I talked about earlier. That yeah. How do you stay disciplined? Like, you're a good example. I don't know if I could do what you're doing, that 10,000 steps, but just hearing you do it makes me jealous and thinking, I need to get off my butt and do something. Do you want, it, and it doesn't have to be 10,000. The Art and Stroke Foundation suggests that getting 10,000 in in a day is good. So, I mean, if you go out and get 5,000, 6,000, and you get your rest of your 3,000, just, you know, getting up and walking around the house or doing whatever, doing doing chores or whatever, great. The way I look at it is, if you did one push-up today and you didn't do any yesterday, you've done one more than you have, right? You're competing against yourself, I guess. That's a great way to say it. And I have other things that, you know, really should come together. Like I got a dog that needs to be walked every day. If I just committed to even 5,000 steps every day, my dog would be like, this is awesome. Yeah. Instead of me at 11 o'clock and go, oh, I didn't walk the dog yet. Yeah. So run to the mailbox and back and he's like, that's my walk? That doesn't count. Yeah. You just wanted to get the mail. <laughs> just, yeah, this is this is a cheap. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right on. I think that was a great interview. I think. Uh, All right, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you being on there. Until next time, as always, Todd Schmeichel, stay epic. Thanks again for listening to Epic Phelan. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at RealRyanPhelan, and visit my website at thecalgaryrealestateguy.com. Until next time, stay epic. <laughs>